The best evidence that a UBI is politically plausible is that the House once passed one in the late 1960s and just barely failed by a vote in the Senate. So in a country with our history and our values, we've come darn close once. This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today we're discussing the universal basic income, which is a wealth transfer policy endorsed by many academics, politicians, and presidential candidates. We're joined today by Professors Daniel Hemmel and Todd Henderson of the University of Chicago Law School. Thank you both for joining us for the discussion. So, Professor Hemmel, can you explain what is universal basic income? A universal basic income is an unconditional cash transfer uh, to everyone, and they can use the money for anything. Um, It is an idea that has been around for several centuries. Uh, Thomas Paine proposed something of the sort in the 18th century. It's an idea that's been embraced by both the left and the right. How is it different from existing safety programs? Uh, It differs in a number of ways. First, existing safety net programs are not universal. Uh, A universal basic income would be that. Uh, So our safety net leaves out uh, a lot of people, people who might really be disabled but don't qualify as disabled based on our metrics. Um, People who don't earn income can't get the earned income tax credit and can't benefit from the child tax credit. So there are alternative wealth transfer policies. You hear about earned income tax credit and negative income tax. How does UBI differ from negative income tax? It doesn't. A negative income tax is a different way of describing a universal basic income. The idea of a negative income tax emerges from uh, writing by Milton Friedman, who is a proponent of an early version of a universal basic income. The idea of a negative income tax is if you fall below a certain income, the government gives you a check. And then as your income increases, that check dwindles and ultimately you're paying the government. The same would essentially be true in a universal basic income too. Everyone would be entitled to a universal basic income, but as you earn more money, you would also owe more money to the federal government in taxes. And at some time, at some point, what you owe would exceed what you get in a universal basic income. So arithmetically, a negative income tax and a universal basic income are equivalent. Um, Differences between a universal basic income and a negative income tax. A negative income tax has the word negative in it. Negative sounds bad. Universal sounds good. Uh, Also, uh, I love the word tax, but most people don't. So in your vision of a universal basic income, would it supplement existing wealth transfer programs or act as a total replacement? I think it should be a supplement to our existing cash and non-cash transfer programs. I think there are good reasons why we might want the government to be in the healthcare business. I think there are good reasons why we might want the government to be in a public edu- in the public education business. Uh, there are other proponents of a universal basic income who would say basically what the government should do is provide public goods and do redistribution in the form of a universal basic income, and that's it. But uh, so there's there's dissensus within the pro UBI movement between people who support uh, a larger social welfare state of which a universal basic income is a component, and those who are of a more libertarian mindset. Uh, one uh, virtue of the Universal Basic Income Coalition is that it's managed to be a big tent that's accommodated different philosophical perspectives. So often UBI is mentioned in the same sentence as job losses from automation or artificial intelligence. Uh, Do you see the issues as linked? No, uh, not really. Um, I have no idea whether the robots are coming to take our jobs or give us more jobs. I think the effects of robots on uh, labor supply are pretty ambiguous. 
if I had a robot to wash my dishes and change my kid's diaper, uh, I'd do more work, not less. So uh, I think robots will displace some workers. Uh, robots will enhance the productivity of other workers. There will be people who train for jobs that are then displaced by robots, and I think they have a good claim to support from the state. But I also think that people who are displaced to lose their jobs because their employer's factory moved to Mexico also have a pretty good claim to redistribution. I don't see why robot job loss, robot-induced job losses give any stronger of a claim to redistribution than any other sort of job loss. That's a good transition. We were, we were interested in the philosophical underpinnings of, of a UBI. In your research, you've identified three basic premises. First, that society should redistribute from the rich to the poor. Uh, second, that redistribution should come largely or exclusively in the form of cash transfers. And then third, that those cash transfers should be unconditional. So we were hoping to dig into each of those three premises and kind of figure out why exactly each of them is necessary to uh, justify a UBI. So just starting with the most basic, I guess, why in your view is redistribution a priority? Uh, well, to be clear, the reason why all three are necessary in order to justify a UBI is because a UBI is redistribution in the form of cash that's unconditional. Uh, so you got to justify redistribution, you've got to justify in the form of cash, and you've got to justify unconditional. My view, I, I am, uh, at the end of the day, a welfareist, um, and I think the reason for redistribution is uh, it increases happiness and reduces pain. And one way of understanding why redistribution can do that is think about how much happier a dollar makes Jeff Bezos. How much less suffering does Jeff Bezos experience because of his extra dollar? The answer is not much. Um, move, an, move a dollar from Jeff Bezos to someone who's below the poverty line, uh, and you can increase happiness and reduce suffering quite a bit. So my support for redistribution is based on the diminishing marginal utility of consumption and the overall goal of increasing happiness and reducing suffering. Um, there are other proponents of redistribution, though, who have very different normative priors. Egalitarians think, look, people should be equal, that equality is a value, uh, or at least equality of resources, equality of opportunity is a value. And in order to make resources more equal across people, we need to take resources from people who have a lot and give to people who have a little. Libertarian proponents of a universal basic income have a whole number of justifications for redistribution. Um, one is the idea that in order for private property to be justified, we need to make sure that there aren't circumstances in which people need to seize private property in order to live. They think that uh, while generally we do have a pretty good claim to uh, private property, you wouldn't have a good claim against the Jean Valjean who's stealing a loaf of bread to keep his daughter Colette alive. So in order to be strong proponents of private property, these libertarians believe we need to make sure that everyone is at least at a subsistence level. So we know when we exclude others from our property that we're not creating a great moral wrong uh, by doing so. There are other proponents of redistribution who I would identify as libertarian who would say, well, redistribution is a public good. It's just like bridges. It's something where uh, we all benefit from there being more redistribution. We all benefit from not seeing poverty around. Uh, part of that is an aesthetic benefit. Part of that is a moral benefit. Part of that is a practical benefit. More poverty leads to more crime. 
So that's their justification for uh, redistribution. And there are other libertarians of classical liberal uh, mindset who believe that we need the social well, uh, the social contract to be on terms that no one could reasonably say no. And if you get nothing, then you could reasonably reject the social contract. So we need to sweeten the deal enough uh, so that no one would reasonably reject it. Okay, moving on to the premise that UBI should take the form of cash rather than in-kind benefits. Why is it so important that UBI be cash? You, you could imagine saying that if taxpayers are going to redistribute wealth, we at least want to maintain some sort of control on how that wealth is, wealth is used. Uh, and that's a tact that we've taken in past programs like food stamps or temporary aid for needy families. So what's so important about the cash element? So it depends. If you're a libertarian, you really don't think that society should be telling people what to do. Um, I think for libertarians, the why in cash question is pretty easy to answer. For welfareists, uh, it's harder. Um, it's not obviously true that people are better off with cash than with goods in kind. Um, though I think there's pretty good evidence that cash transfers do make a positive difference in people's lives and much more ambiguous evidence with respect to other transfers. So uh, we have lots of evidence from cash transfer programs abroad uh, that's pretty favorable. Um, and here in the United States, we have natural experiments, instances in which groups of people have basically received cash windfalls, and we see what they do with them. And they generally seem to do good things with them. They don't spend it on cigarettes and beer, uh, and uh, their spending seems to make their kids better off the long run. For an egalitarian, Egalitarians think that, hey, if Jeff Bezos has the opportunity to decide how he's going to use his resources, then why shouldn't someone who was born into a low-income family without great privileges, why shouldn't they have that uh, opportunity as well? So the egalitarian would say, if the state's not micromanaging your decisions, why should it be micromanaging my decision? And turning to the last of your three premises, uh, what's so important about UBI being unconditional? Welfarists, egalitarians, and libertarians will give you different answers to this. I think the libertarian would say, look, we could make a UBI uh, conditional upon some showing of need, um, in which case it wouldn't be a UBI, it would be a, a CBI, a conditional basic income. Um, and we could basically decide who is work capable. Uh, and if you're work capable and you're not working, um, you wouldn't receive a UBI. Um, I think the lesson from the last several decades of American history is that we're not very good at figuring out who's work capable or not, that the state doesn't have the capacity to see in your soul and determine whether you can or can't work. There are people with disabilities that go undiagnosed um, or diagnosed but unrecognized by the state. There are disabilities like uh, substance abuse disorders that for decades weren't recognized as disabilities and now are. Um, if we have even a small dose of epistemic humility, um, we'll realize that there are some people who we are currently classifying as work capable who turn out not to be work capable. I think that's the strongest reason for unconditionality, um, that basically any specification of conditions uh, would require us to make decisions about deservingness that we're not very good uh, at making, and that false negatives uh, are really constant here. False negatives mean excluding people from the social safety net who ought to be let in. I'm curious what the real-world evidence is on whether UBI is successful. I know there have been a number of pilot programs. Can you speak to what the data suggests? Uh, yeah. I think the best evidence in the United States comes not from a, an explicit UBI pilot, but from a natural experiment. Basically, an experiment that was unplanned. 
Uh, and that was the Eastern Cherokee Nation started a casino, um, and they suddenly had casino profits, and they dispersed the profits to tribal members. And we could see how families with tribal member with tribal members who were receiving something that looks a lot like a basic income, it was about four thousand dollars per year, did, and they did better. Um, their kids stayed in school for approximately one more year. Their kids uh, were uh, less likely to have mental health problems. They were less likely to get involved in uh, the criminal justice system. So that's a pretty good test case for a UBI uh, in in the United States. Um, And we have a control group. We have people in the same communities around the same time who weren't members of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, so they weren't getting the casino profits. The other evidence that we have in the United States comes from the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend. So this is uh, something that has existed in Alaska since 1982. Uh, Alaska makes a lot, the state makes a lot of money from oil revenue, and it distributes that money to Alaskans. And the check is about $2,000 per resident per year. And the control group there uh, is not quite as easy to define as the control group in the Cherokee experiment because everyone in Alaska is getting this, but we can compare Alaska to other otherwise similar states. Kids are healthier uh, after receiving the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend. There's no negative effect on labor supply. Um, Reports from Alaska are pretty positive. People in Alaska love their Permanent Fund dividend. So that's, that's the Alaska evidence. Turning to you, Professor Henderson, I was surprised that libertarians like the idea of a UBI. As a libertarian yourself, what do you think of it? Well, I think the I agree with Professor Hemmel that the libertarians, accepting out the sort of super hardcore ones who think that taxes are theft, uh, would make the pitchforks argument, which Professor Hemmel did. I mean, I'm characterizing what he said as the pitchforks argument, that the best uh, argument for transfers is political stability avoiding a revolution, people coming in, just taking by force what you have. Um, you know, the other arguments about aesthetics and um, crime reduction and things, I think, are just sort of of a piece with that, that, you know, you can't imagine a world in which you have to climb over people who are suffering in the streets to get to your Tesla. Uh, I think that's something that people have a hard time with, whether it's those people would re- resort to crime or it's just unseemly or it would be a revolution. I think there's some variant of that, which is a buying social peace, uh, justifying private property in that sense that most libertarians would get behind. The gap between that and I'm a welfareist, I'm going to take your money and give it to somebody else until the point in which uh, those two things are, I don't know, equal or the net effect is uh, still positive uh, for for the giver. Uh, I think that's just completely unjustifiable. Uh, I don't think it works as a practical matter, and I think it's not morally defensible in any way. So um, I think that's – and there's a huge gap between those two things just in terms of how much the transfers are. I think if we could agree about what the transfer sizes were, then we could talk about what the best mechanism to deliver that is. And on that, I think Hemel and I would have a, even you know large amounts of agreement. Uh, you know, He talked about – wanting to keep the government in the healthcare business, wanting to keep the government in the education business. I don't think those are businesses the government's done a good job at at all. And so I would say, and sign up for a UBI that just eradicated 
social programs and just said, let's give people cash transfers and more or less trust people to make good choices. And there was flavors of that in what he suggested. The Cherokee made good choices. The Alaskans made good choices. I'm not sure why he's resisting extrapolating that to to everybody else. So if his bargain was, you know, let's take the total federal budget, uh, excluding things that are public goods like the military, um, and, you know, I don't know what it is, $10,000 a year per person or something the federal government spends, and just give that out to people in cash and let them make choices and let the government produce public goods, I would sign up tomorrow. So you'd be on board with Hemel's proposition if it were a replacement rather than a supplement, but because it's framed as a supplement, that's your concern? Yeah. And I think the reason, you know, uh, he, again, he was making the argument repeatedly in his comments, you know, uh, with respect to disability, the government can't see into your soul. They don't know who good workers are and who, who's capable to be on disability. Uh, the way the disability programs are run, we probably have too few people in some categories and way too many in other categories. There's pretty good correlation between uh, the unemployment rate spikes and the number of people who uh, go on to disability jump dramatically, suggesting people are using it as a form of uh, social insurance as opposed to uh, something about a physical disability. So I think his indictment of the of the disability system, the government is really bad at this stuff, could just be extrapolated to lots of other areas. There are very few federal government programs that are proven with any data to be successful. Um, there's been, there was a recent Oregon experiment with the expansion of Medicaid. They randomly, it was a great, you know, academics would love this. They randomly assigned people uh, extra Medicaid. Uh, and the punchline was there's almost no benefit. There were some slight mental health benefits, but the the authors of this study who were, you know, welfareists like Hemel, uh, who specialize in public health basically came away and said, like, we didn't see a real big gain from this. And I think that's true writ large across almost all government programs. So I have faith in people. I would give people cash. Um, you know, I have faith in more some people more than others. Uh, you know, I'd figure out a way we could get the cash into the hands of the women who run households as opposed to the men. I think they probably make better choices. Um, there's some good evidence for that. But in general, I'm in favor of replacement. So you mentioned you're generally on board with the UBI as the most libertarian type of wealth transfer. Where would you see areas of disagreement between you and P Professor Hamill on this subject? So, the f so a couple things. Uh, first, I mean, he talked about um, uh, cash for free is how he described UBI. Okay, there's no such thing as free. I don't think that – you know, the government doesn't do things for free and the idea that the government would just write people checks and step away and we wouldn't be paternalistic and we wouldn't try to control the way people spend their money, I just think it's just implausible. I can't imagine uh, that happening. And – you know, a good uh, example of this, uh, the economist Greg Mankiw from Harvard gave this example in a recent talk that I saw. He gave Harvard students in his economics class, he's got several hundred top minds in the country in his economics class, and he proposed two variants of a tax and transfer system. The first one was $1,000 a month for people who have zero income. And then a phase out, you lose 20 cents of that for each dollar of income you make. And then that's financed by a progressive income tax of 20% on salaries of or incomes of more than $60,000. So a very standard kind of means tested transfer program, tax and transfer. And his second option was, let's write everybody $1,000 a check per month. And we finance that with a 20% flat tax on all income. Okay. That's the, the Hemel version of the UBI. 
So tax and transfer system, progressive income tax, UBI. Okay. He set this example up and, and he has his students, which do you prefer? Overwhelmingly, Harvard students preferred the first one, tax and transfer. Phase out for income, make sure it goes from rich people to poor people, et cetera. Well, the punchline is the two things are exactly the same. Economically, the incidence rate is exactly the same. If you take someone with 100,000 of income, 60,000 of income, 5,000 of income, the effects are identical. And yet people overwhelmingly prefer the tax and transfer system. I think there's something deep, some deep human, I don't know what it is, uh, that explains that, uh, that also explains why in a, uh, you know, Switzerland tried to ins- instantiate a UBI as a replacement for some of their welfare programs. They had a referendum. It lost 77% to 23%. So people resist this idea of the universality of this. People resist the idea of the cash transfer program of it because they want to be paternalistic and tell people how to spend their money or they have a vested interest in the current social welfare programs. Whatever it is, they, they like the fact that people are stigmatized. You know, Hemel talked about how that could be a a bad thing from the point of the person using uh, welfare. For people who don't like transfers, that's a good thing because you feel rotten when you're the person there, not the the judger, but the person being judged, uh, and that encourages you to get off food stamps. So, in your view, the the main argument against his vision is that you know, as a political realist. We, when we do wealth dis- distribution, we do it paternalistically and it's just fiction to say that you're going to have these no strings attached style. Yeah. So I think what we'll end up with instead is a, a $2 trillion cash transfer program on top of what we already do. Uh, and, you know, then that just gets us back to, you know, I think we transfer too much as it is already. Uh, I would actually personally, if I thought there was any efficacy to government programs, I personally would happily spend more on government and advocate for more money being spent on government. I, I, I don't see – I'm a data person. I don't see the evidence that the way the government spends money uh, is effective. So I would be actually in favor of it. Uh, that'd be fine with me. Um, but I think we would just see this as an add-on and I don't think that's really uh, – I don't think more transfers is a good idea. So that's why I'm uh, opposed on that grounds. Um, you know, I think too the um, – the, the kind of transfer program we would get as a political compromise would not be the universal one that he suggested. And I would just point to this Harvard example of why, you know, people just will bristle at that uh, for a variety of reasons. Are there arguments in favor of a UBI above and beyond what Professor Hemmel described? Well, I think one thing is, um, so uh, one benefit of a, of a, of a wide-scale UBI that replaced social programs, unlike what he suggested, is it would bring a clarity to how much the government actually spends to help out the less fortunate. Uh, and I think that would be a good that would be a good thing to know. I don't think the average American has any sense of the kinds of transfer programs we have and how much they cost and are they efficacious or not. So I think just boiling it down to here's how much we're spending for this particular group. We're just going to give it to you in cash. That would like that would bring political clarity, and maybe the result is people would say, you know, that's way too little. How can you live in New York City on just this a little amount of money? But I think that the virtue of being transparent about how much we're spending, uh, I think, would be a good political reckoning. So I'd be in favor of it for that reason. And you know, I like the 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 examples he gave, the Cherokee and the Alaska Permanent Fund. You know, I don't know how willing I am to, you know 
take that and say, let's project from that on to 300 million Americans. That's why I think we need to do some more uh, experimentation. But look, I think, you know, take an example of something, an area I teach American Indian law. The Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington uh, has 5,000 full-time employees and a budget of a couple billion dollars a year. If we took that, all the money we spend on those people and that system that operates in Washington, and we just reduced it to cash and just a big pot of money, and we just pass it out to people like they do in Alaska and Share or the Cherokee, uh, it would be about uh, $12,000 per family of people who live on reservations against an average income on reservations of like about $25,000. So you'd be giving them a 50% increase in their income. My guess is every single one of them, every single person would say, yes, please dismantle this government agency, which not only does not give us a lot, for centuries has been the source of oppression and violence and you know r- wrongdoing against our people. Let, just give us the money and we'll spend it. I think almost everybody would agree with that. And yet it's never going to happen. Um, and it's that same kind of dynamic which makes me somewhat pessimistic about uh, a kind of really revolutionary uh, universal basic income because it's just got to get washed through the government process. And that inevitably means that it's going to get screwed up. So one of the things that I found interesting in learning about this issue is how popular universal basic income is among academics like on all sides of the spectrum, libertarians, welfareists, wherever, there's a lot of support among uh, law professors. But as you mentioned, this would probably be a politically unpalatable for many voters, the idea of an unconditional cash transfer. So what do you think explains that? Why is it so popular among academics? And then in your view, at least, it's just a total non-starter politically. I think it's because generally people take their political views from politicians, um, and it's not in the interest of politicians to simply tax people and transfer cash to other people. That's a simple system that doesn't require bureauc- bureaucrats. It doesn't empower government officials to make choices for people, which once you start making choices for people, you both get to exercise that great pleasure of lording over people, but also being able to sell access to people to make them to make the choices that they want you to make. And so I think, you know, the politicians are not in favor of this. And I'll just give you an example. The earned income tax credit is a version of negative income tax. Uh, it's a just a cash transfer. You, you have to be working, but it's a, a negative income tax, something you guys talked about. And it is its closest proximity as a policy is the minimum wage. So we can either, uh, if you work at McDonald's, the government can either set the price for your labor, say, we're going to price fix your labor at $15 an hour. And let's say your productivity and the market clearing price is $10 an hour. So McDonald's will pay you 10. That's how much you're worth to them. And the government says, no, 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 you have got to pay them 15. That's a tax of $5 an hour on the employer. And the employer has to pay. Okay. And then the employer can decide, well, is that going to come out of my profits? Is it going to come out of the, raise the price of Big Macs? The income tax credit, on the other hand, says if you're making $10, we'll transfer you $5 in cash through your tax system, and that's funded as a tax on everybody in the United States. Well, both the tax to pay the income tax credit and the tax on the employer both cause distortions. The, and you know, in both cases, the people who advocate those policies think the distortion cost is worth it. 
but it's unquestionable that the distortion costs are less on the economy as a whole than on the individual employer. Because as the owner of an individual McDonald's, if you tell me I've got to pay this person $5 more than they're worth, then I start thinking to myself, oh, maybe I could hire a robot to do this job or work deal with fewer servers or whatever. I have a disincentive to hire that person. You get the same distortion effects in the economy as a whole, but they're spread out over a larger base and they're not likely to, to have as big a distortion effects on, on especially hiring low wage, low productivity workers. So for that reason, there is universal support for earned income tax credit as opposed to minimum wage in academics. Economists right and left, law professors right and left who are, who agree with the premise of redistribution, say, do the earned income tax credit. Do you see any bumper stickers when you drive around Hyde Hard Park? Do you see anybody out in front of a McDonald's holding up a placard that says, raise the earned income tax credit? No, it's fight for 15. Every time I turn on NPR, I hear the word minimum wage, I hear it a dozen times in an hour because it's something that is appealing politically to people. And so the politicians are driving that. If they really wanted to help out poor people, we could get an earned income tax credit increase through the Congress. Uh, nobody rallies. No one gets excited about an additional marginal transfer program. So I think it's really about political sloganeering and, and, and phrase making and rhetoric as opposed to the actual policy difference, which is just another way of saying politics is not really about policy. Turning back to you, Professor Hemmel. So we've heard a lot about the positives of UBI the arguments in favor of it. Now, uh, I think it'd be good to discuss some of the potential costs. So in particular, what do you think the chances are that a UBI would cause people to uh, substitute leisure for work because they're aware uh, that they have a guaranteed income from the government? I think pretty low. And here's why I think that. One, um, we can look at Alaska. And Alaska was $2,000 a person, not $6,000 a person. But we haven't seen any measurable labor supply effects. We haven't seen significant labor supply effects from the Eastern Cherokee natural experiment either. So that's that's sort of the, the, the empirical uh, basis. The intuitive basis is a lot of us, and you after you spend a few years uh, at a law firm, would have the option of taking your savings, buying an annuity, and living on $12,000 a year. And you're not going to do that because you would like to live on more than $12,000 a year. And uh, $12,000 is the, the Andrew Yang number. We're talking here about $6,000 a year. I don't know all that many people who would just say, uh, $6,000 a year, I'll call it quits. Um, I'll go uh, I'll go live on the beach uh, in Malibu. $6,000 isn't going to get you very far in Malibu. But it'll make a big difference in the lives of people with other income sources. And it'll make a big difference in the lives of people who right now have zero. But we're... Not basic. We're not making everyone a trust fund baby with six thousand uh, dollars a year. Um, here's where a UBI will disincentivize work. A UBI requires a higher tax on income. Uh, I don't think we can fund a UBI uh, just by taxing the the top one percent. And when we raise labor income taxes, people work less. We know that. That's not a reason not to tax labor, but there's there's no good way around it. Would people work dramatically less because the tax rate goes up ten percent? No, we've seen fluctuations of 10 percentage points you know, at times in, at least in, in some of our lifetimes, uh, and we haven't seen mass exoduses or entries into the workforce. Some people say that getting a government payment may have negative effects on self-esteem. Do you think that there's any merit to that argument? I mean, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, one, most of the social security beneficiaries I know don't seem to 
lose a lot of self-esteem because of it. Um, Alaskans who receive the permanent fund dividend don't feel bad because they uh, receive the permanent fund dividend. I think it actually increases their pride uh, in being Alaskans. This is kind of a cool thing that Alaska does. It shares its oil wealth broadly. Um, we would be sharing our national wealth uh, broadly. Um, I think uh, there are esteem effects of a UBI that would actually be quite positive. Using food stamps is stigmatizing. Many of us have been at the uh, at the cash register, and the person in front of us is checking out with food stamps, and it's taking a while, and we roll our eyes, and we later feel bad about it. But the use of food stamps is stigmatizing. Uh, the use of Section 8 vouchers is stigmatizing. One of the great things about a UBI is if you're using a dollar that comes from a UBI, it doesn't say UBI on it. It just says... This note is legal tender of the United States. So I think it destigmatizes uh, the use of handouts and could actually have a positive effect on the pride we take uh, being Americans. In terms of implementing UBI, how likely do you think it is that UB something like UBI be adopted in a country with America's political history and culture? And what do you think the different ways that UBI might be packaged in order to make it more palatable to the public? Yeah, so I would say the probability that I place in 2019 on a UBI being enacted in the next 10 years um, is a lot higher than the probability that I would have placed in 2014 on Donald Trump being elected president in the next 10 years. So my political prognostication uh, abilities uh, aren't, uh, aren't great. I would say the best evidence that a UBI is politically plausible is that the House once passed one. President Nixon had an idea for family assistance plan in the late 1960s and actually got bipartisan support um, in the House for it and just barely failed by a vote in the Senate. So in a country with our history and our values, we've come darn close once. We have a presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, who really has nothing going for him other than this UBI idea, um, and he's doing reasonably well. So the fact that with like Almost no relevant credentials, but it's a pretty good idea. Um, you could go far. It suggests to me that someone with relevant credentials and this idea might even be able to go further. The fact that a UBI has attracted support on the left and the right, I think, is a pretty good sign. Would I like bet my universal basic income that we're going to have it in the next decade? No. Um, would I say it's reasonably plausible in my lifetime? Yeah. I would say it's definitely something that is plausible enough that we should be thinking about how it would work. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshyLrev. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify.